0: Welcome to the Hydric & Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior-level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydric & Struggles Leadership Podcast. In today's podcast, Lessons from the Disrupted, I'm speaking to Stephen Overman, Chief Marketing Officer at Kodak. Stephen started his career as an artist and working in the film industry, but has since gone into a career in marketing. And prior to joining Kodak, Stephen was Vice President, Global Brand Strategy and Marketing Creation at Nokia. Stephen has also written the book, Conscious Economy, How a Mass Movement for Good is Great for Business, where he explains his view of how companies and brands can be a force for good. Stephen, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. A
1: pleasure to be here this morning.
0: So Stephen, can we start talking uh, a bit about you and your personal journey? There aren't many people we get to meet who have come from being an artist through to being a a leader in two of the world's most uh, or best-known brands. So how have you gone through that journey?
1: Well, I I suppose I've always been motivated by curiosity. So um, uh, even when I was studying in university, I chose to study film Um, because of all of the subjects on offer, it seemed the most complicated. It involved uh, writing, storytelling, acting... Uh, spatial concerns and technology. Um, And in fact, I I ended up being uh, the first film student in my program to really embrace video and and nonlinear digital technology, which seems to be uh, a theme in my career. (laughs) So um, it it wasn't until I started working at Wired Magazine in San Francisco in the early 90s, where I was one of the first employees, uh, where I became interested in business as the ultimate creative act. I worked directly with the founders and I was blown away by the way that they deftly catalyzed an intersection between science, technology, art, design, media. And it just seemed to me that that kind of collaboration and, and intersection of different worlds of practice was the most exciting way to spend one's day. So uh, that's what I've been trying to do ever since.
0: Fascinating. And and you've obviously ends up with two of the best known brands that in their heyday have been absolute forces on the on the global stage but both interestingly enough uh, potentially for different reasons have been through periods of uh, real and pretty sudden disruption so as you reflect on the stories behind nokia the story behind kodak are there commonalities behind those and can you sort of bring those stories to life in terms of the disruption there
1: Well, clearly I'm a glutton for punishment because uh, (laughs) I I sort of prefer to take on tough challenges as opposed to sort of easy, you know, kind of day job uh, work. Um, I'll talk about Nokia first. So I I have been working um, in the tech industry and the startup industry, and um, Nokia never really penetrated the American market the way, say, Motorola did with the StarTAC device. But people who were design savvy and kind of on the leading edge, or at least thought they were on the leading edge of of technology, knew about this Finnish company that was making uh, mobile phones, or as we call them in the U.S., cell phones. And the more I learned about this company, Nokia, and its brand, and its brand promise, which was to connect people the more obsessed I became. So in in effect, I stalked Nokia for many years, uh, very keen to find a way to either work with them or or work within the company. Anyway, long story short, ended up uh, being involved in pitching some agency business for Nokia when they were launching their N series devices, which you may remember that the Nokia N95, for a while it was the uh, Blockbuster device and the first mobile device to really combine different media capabilities from camera to music to internet browsing, et cetera. So um, from agency side, I went internally at Nokia. Um, It was the first time I made that journey from outside to inside a corporation that I thought I knew very well. And, um, and of course, learns learned all, all sorts of things about, about mobile technology, corporate life, marketing, innovation and design, and the intersections between uh, those disciplines in the corporation, and, um, and the impact of, of mobile technology on virtually every uh, aspect of our lives. I was part of that brand and its journey during its most dramatic rise and its fall. And so seeing kind of both trajectories that a, that a brand can take was really instructive. And you can learn a lot from corporations and teams and groups that, that make mistakes or that are simply structurally unable to seize, seize opportunity. And I think it's a combination of of two. There's there's mistake-making, but look, even even highly successful companies make tactical and strategic errors. They could just absorb them better. Um, And then then there are disruptive moments in time that require the kind of structure and culture, and by structure I mean infrastructure, supply chain, talent, to really seize on them. And what happened at Nokia is the company was built around an operating system it had acquired that became its own proprietary operating system, Symbian. And Symbian was fantastic for the first wave of mobile innovation. And in fact, um, for a while, it was the most distributed computing operating system in the world. And we were justifiably proud of that. But then everything changed. And I could go on for far longer than your listeners would want to hear in this podcast, all the things that changed. But it it was everything from touchscreen innovation... And Nokia was very pro-button versus touchscreen. And I'll tell you, part of why Nokia loved buttons and keys as opposed to touchscreens is that you could look at somebody and with your thumb still communicate on the handset. The touchscreen causes you to look down at the screen. And since Nokia's mission was connecting people, the feeling in the company and the feeling in the design team for quite a while was that touchscreens on a handset broke the connection which could in the long run turn out to be a deep truth. Anyway, that was my, my time at Nokia was so instructive on so many levels. And it's a brand that I continue to be very proud of because they're now uh, doing some pretty amazing and innovative things in healthcare, which is uh, an area that I had been pushing the company to focus on um, some time ago. And, and uh, my team and I put together a strategy uh, about the next wave of Nokia innovation and healthcare would have been, um, or was in that strategy, a, a key pillar. And at CE, Yes, this year Nokia's entire presence was all about uh, mobile healthcare solutions. So that was very gratifying to see, and I, I wish them every success. I think there's there's no more profound way to connect people in the future than through well-being and physical health.
0: And, and so, just taking a bit of a deeper dive, if I might, then into that experience. So there, you talk about structural issues, but but fundamentally they appeared to as an organization miss that shift in customer expectations whether that's around buttons and touchscreens as you reflect on that are there lessons that are common to other organizations in terms of how they could uh, have done that better or how they could have adapted faster uh, are there things that you draw out from that or indeed perhaps since uh, having got to understand Kodak and its own journey but are there common lessons between those two stories that perhaps we can uh, take some lessons from
1: well, the, the, I think there are some common lessons, and I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the things that, that I have learned that I'm, I'm working to apply at Kodak. Um, it's really easy to talk about innovation, talk about companies that take advantage of it, that innovate well or that don't innovate well, um, particularly from the outside. I, I might sound like I'm being an apologist on behalf of two brands that clearly missed significant opportunities, but I, I, don't, I don't feel like an apologist. I'm more of a curious learner. And uh, one of the things I've learned is that innovation requires culture and opportunism. And often the innovation that will uh, kind of lay the groundwork for tremendous growth in the future is not something that the corporation and even the smartest people within it have spotted as the biggest opportunity. And so um, companies have to place a number of different bets. And you, know, you, don't, you don't usually hear about the bets that don't work out. But it is widely known that Steve Jobs, for example, was not a fan of the App Store. And one could argue that it's Apple's flexibility and and the vast variety of use cases that the App Store on iOS makes possible is the reason the company is the most valuable company in the world today. But the reason Steve didn't like it is that it took the control of the user experience out of Apple's hands and actually put it in the hands of the app developer. But the company was able to seize that opportunity. Perhaps it was not seen as something massively disruptive at the time. Um, At Nokia, uh, the company did realize that Symbian was nearing the end of its lifespan. And it actually recognized that fact in time to to place a bet. And the bet was either going to be on Android or on Microsoft Windows. And there was a a vigorous debate inside the company, as you can imagine. When Google created Android Foundation, who was their first call? Nokia. In fact, any innovator in the mobile space called Nokia first. So uh, it was a Swiss company that invented touchscreen technology, and they offered it. To Nokia first. There's a reason Nokia didn't uh, seize it. It wasn't only Nokia's um, commitment to tactile keys and buttons. It was also the fact that at the time that the technology for touch screens was initially developed, it couldn't be shrunken to fit in a pocket. It was still kind of tablet sized. And this was at a time when Nokia was enjoying still accelerating growth by making things that fit in people's pockets and Nokia adopting Windows, which turned out to be a mistake, but there are reasons the company made that bet. It thought that using Windows would be widely, wildly differentiating from Samsung Mm -hmm. uh, and Samsung's adoption of Android and Windows was uh, beautifully designed. And Nokia and the Finnish culture are very design-driven, mm-hmm. and the Windows interface was—I um, still believe—one of the most beautiful uh, mobile interfaces uh, that the industry has seen. But in the end, it, it became a two-horse race, not a three-horse race, and uh, you know the future rode itself. But Nokia still stands. It is uh, creating connected innovation in healthcare, and I look forward to seeing where they uh, where they take that vertical and other verticals next. And, and in my experience with um, both Nokia and Kodak, and I'm very new to Kodak, but I've been doing a lot of research and collecting a lot of stories from colleagues, um, Kodak, like Nokia, was well aware of what was happening. Different from Nokia is that Kodak invented much of the means of the demise of its business model. So it's not that Kodak missed the digital revolution, at least not in terms of technology and innovation. It was a Kodak engineer who invented uh, and built one of the world's very first uh, functional digital cameras. Kodak created the technology that makes it possible to share a digital image from any device. So you just, you know, the mind reels if you think about what it might mean if Kodak could be monetizing that today, but um, we can't. The company gets beat up a lot in case studies for not innovating. And actually, the truth, at least as I see it, is far more complicated because it was one of the most innovative technology and science-driven companies the world has ever seen. It even innovated its own disruption. One of the things that was an obstacle to monetizing its own innovation and truly commercializing it was that film was just so profitable. Mm. There aren't many companies... Who could do it. And until very recently, film was still a bigger business than digital imaging in terms of pure profitability. I'm, I, as far as I know... Instagram has never turned a profit. And Kodak invented something very much like Instagram quite some time ago. And I, I say this with love. I love Instagram. I'm actually uh, kind of addicted to it. Um, and, I, and I think there's enormous value still to be unlocked in, in what Instagram and other image sharing platforms represent. Uh, but it's not that Kodak didn't know how to do that. Kodak invented something called Kodak Gallery years ago and ultimately sold off the technology to, uh, to Shutterfly um, during bankruptcy. So although it had a fantastic game-changing digital innovation capability, and in fact for quite a long run was the world's leading seller of digital cameras, it was not able ultimately to monetize the benefits of the fluidity of digital media. And part of why it couldn't is that it was still making far more money manufacturing and selling film. When I think about the future of Kodak, I actually, look back to look forward. I, I find it both um, inspiring and uh, useful to uh, study the origins of the company and really understand the motivations of Kodak's founder, George Eastman. He's a fascinating guy. In fact, so fascinating, we're in the process of developing a feature film script about him because we think he's a, a business visionary. That, And I'm not saying this only as a, a Kodak person. He is as interesting as Steve or Bill, or Larry, or any of the other um, first name tech leaders that we see as visionaries. And his ambition was to innovate in the service of art. He was passionate about photography himself. And although he was um, a banker at the start of his career, he so loved photography that he started creating his own photosensitized photographic plates and kind of tinkering around with chemistry. and. Um, As the story goes, at one point, he actually blew up his kitchen and his mother kicked him out of the house. (laughs) So he rented a little space on State Street in Rochester, New York, above a a garage, I believe it was. And today, a uh, 20-story tower, Kodak Tower, stands there. It was designed by the architects who designed the Empire State Building, and that's where Kodak is headquartered today. Anyway, I love this guy. The entrepreneur, George, is the guy who fascinates me. He invented the discipline of marketing. He invented the word Kodak because... He thought the letter K was odd and strong, and he thought beginning and ending a word with the letter K would make it memorable and also make it memorable in any language. So here's this guy who was effectively working in a garage imagining a company that would be global in the service of photography, which was his own personal passion. That to me is really cool. Um, So when I think about Kodak in the future, I can envision quite clearly, actually, a company that is serving the creative person in each of us, and it is empowering human creativity with new technology and science in ways that are so accessible and easy, it's as effortless as pushing the button on a camera. The the original Kodak mantra was, you push the button, we do the rest. And so when we are doing kind of innovation, envisioning exercises at Kodak, where we always start is, what's the button and what's the rest in the future? And in, in fact, we do, we do have a roadmap in which um, blockchain is one of the technologies that we will leverage. But there are some other services that we are uh, in the process of building that will make it incredibly easy for anyone, anywhere, whether amateur or professional, to create anything. Whether it's a film, a piece of music, a piece of media, a business, a work of design, an object, you name it we will make it possible and easy for you to create it.
0: Now, One of the points you touched on through that is culture. And this is something which we talk to our clients a lot about. Uh, They're moving from a traditional, whether it be a manufacturing business or another setup, to much more of a digitally enabled organization. And the reality of going through that is culture, as you rightly point out, is a fundamental as part of that journey, increasing the agility of the organization, etc. So how has Kodak gone through that journey recently? Because the announcements over the last few weeks in terms of Kodak Coin uh, and the use of new digital technologies like blockchain, etc., really quite exciting. So how have you managed to reposition that culture and evolve it to now be
1: potentially a leader in that field? I'm uh, relatively new to the company. So I've been at at Kodak, uh, this will be my fourth year at the company. Um, and I was brought in by our CEO, Jeff Clark, just after the company emerged from bankruptcy. So uh, as a member of the leadership team, I'm part of some of the new leaders who've been brought in to help drive uh, some transformation through the company. Our leadership team is about 50% long-term Kodak executives and, and, and 50% um, new folks like myself. I can tell you this as a newcomer to Kodak, people at Kodak are really smart. It's PhD territory. It's a company that's been driven by science um, since it was founded 130 years ago. And Kodak executives are are deeply experienced across a range of disciplines and have been through perhaps the toughest challenges any business executive can go through. So the culture is an interesting one. Um, And the first thing I did when I joined was do everything I could to get to know it. And one of the things I learned is that Kodak's culture is sort of like, uh, I'd almost compare it to... (laughs) to Europe, is a lot of microcultures within it. And that's because the company as it is constituted today, um, well, there's the core Kodak, and then there were a number of acquisitions um, made over about the last uh, Ten to fifteen years or so, and so when you go to different offices, and I know this is true in, in, in some other companies too, but when you go to different offices, depending on which acquired company that office was the headquarters of, you get you get a, a slightly different culture, and yet and a slightly different language, and slightly different you know ways of working and um, talent and skills, etc. These acquired companies were all in the commercial print industry, and the majority of Kodak's revenue today uh, is driven from um, innovation. Uh, materials and and technologies that serve the commercial print industry, but there's there's analog print and then there's digital print, and so so the companies that um, that drove these various uh, technologies had had different types of people in them. So lots of different cultures within Kodak, but then at the same time a kind of meta culture and the overarching culture. I, I would say the best thing about it is people are outrageously resilient. You don't go through what that company went through. You know, it's not like Kodak's the only company to have gone into administration, but it's certainly the most famous. I think we can say it is the most famous and spectacular and misunderstood uh, business failure in history. And many of the people I work with were there when it was one of the world's greatest companies and they experienced the trauma, there's no other way of putting it, of bankruptcy. They had to you know, show up at the Thanksgiving dinner table and explain it to their relatives. And yet people at, at Kodak persist. Those who've stayed uh, are really committed to proving that this company has life in it. That resilience, I've never seen anything like it mm-hmm. anywhere else. At the same time, what accompanies that resilience is some risk aversion. And that's why we um, try to combine in every team deep experience with fresh points of view. Some of the decisions that, um, that our CEO took as he was putting together his leadership team seem, might seem sort of strange and certainly did to some long-term Kodak people, like the fact that we're all based in different places. We kind of shook up the idea that there is this kind of central headquarters. And, and the culture of Kodak in Europe is actually one of the, the more kind of sparky Refreshing cultures within the company, I have to say, and that has a lot to do with the various executives that that have run it here. We work very closely with partners, and that's one of the ways we build agility into into our future is to is to in effect outsource it. You mentioned the um, blockchain innovation and the cryptocurrency that that we've just announced. Um, this is one of the most exciting things that we've done uh, at, at Kodak since since I've been there. Um, Kodak for 130 years has been committed to empowering artists and photographers with with leading-edge technology, science, materials, and services. And the most disruptive and interesting uh, technology that I've seen emerge since the emergence of the World Wide Web itself is blockchain. I think blockchain is, because it's so new and because the paradigm of of blockchain is so profoundly decentralized and nonlinear, it's hard to get our minds around it. I think it's fairly misunderstood. Um, and and so it tends to get associated with Bitcoin and Ethereum, particularly Bitcoin. And people see blockchain as a technology that enables an investment vehicle um, that that only certain types of, you know, kind of financial gurus can understand and jump in on. And then we see the hype of the rise and fall of Bitcoin and what's going to happen with cryptocurrency. That's not what blockchain is. Bitcoin is one highly visible application of that technology. Um, But what blockchain really does is disintermediate business relationships between individual parties. That's really what it does. Virtually any business agreement between two parties can be secured and monetized through the blockchain. And that means services like Uber, for example, which is all about an agreement between you, the rider. And me, the driver. I'm not an Uber driver. I have a driver's <laughs> license here in the UK, but let's just say I were. We could have our own agreement. We wouldn't need Uber as the intermediary with blockchain. Blockchain could disrupt that. So the Kodak announcement um, about Kodak One, which is a photographic registry, and Kodak Coin, which is a, a Kodak-branded cryptocurrency, captivated a lot of people because it is the first truly pragmatic application of this technology that's applied to a vertical. In other words, it's not just a pure coin. It actually solves a real problem, which is rights management for photographers. With the proliferation of digital imaging, two things have happened. One, the value of imaging itself, or an imaging economy, if you will, has grown. Yet, who loses out in that value? The photographer. Because once the digital image has been shared, it's easy for anybody to to move it around. That's the power of digital. And so the value starts to accrue to the owner of the network, not the originator of the content. So this um, Kodak One registry, we believe, can be applied to any number of verticals. And it's ultimately about empowering a person to own and monetize or in some way... Uh, retain the value of that which they've created, whether it's a photograph or going forward, uh, potentially a piece of music or a piece of writing, or a piece of branded intellectual property, or a work of design, or even, yes, your biometrics. Um, we think that the, that, that uh, this is a very pragmatic thing for Kodak to do. It's very much in keeping with our mission, um, and we're doing it with a partner. Our partner, when digital, is able to move incredibly fast, we keep up with them because we have a small team collaborating with them. They license the Kodak brand from us, um, but it is it is they who will run the ICO and it is it is it is they who are building the registry. Um, down the road, we'll see where this relationship will go, but developing innovation through a deep and branded partnership is a great way for Kodak mm-hmm. to do it and and it's a learning that I would actually take into other organizations too because you you mitigate your risk. Um, you get the brand credit for it. Licensing agreements require a lot of collaboration going forward, so it's a, it's a pretty easy way to establish a partnership that has a lot of upside and and kind of minimizes uh, risk. And of course, when you're innovating, you're taking on you're. By the very nature of innovation, you're, you're leaning into risk. So doing it doing it with partners is, is a great way for a company like us to engage in that process.
0: And so, Stephen, there will been many lessons throughout your career in how best to incubate and support innovation. What is the the one, if you had to pick one, what is the one
1: that really stands out for you? It's the people. It's all about the people and not even necessarily their skill set, more their mindset. Kodak has incredibly skilled people um, and incredibly resilient people. But as we bring new folks in to augment the rich and deep skills and experience and resilience in the company, we're looking for people who, who see things very differently, who are open to learning and trying things they've never tried before. I've had no problem attracting this kind of talent, by the way people sometimes think, how do you get somebody to join a company like Kodak? We turn people down more than we, it's not hard to recruit fantastic talent into the company. Um, And we've recruited people from leading technology companies and household name brands. And we've also recruited young creative people who want to sort of step outside um, the fields that they've been in before, whether it's fashion or art or photography, and really, bring those skills and that thinking to bear on a, on a corporate turnaround. So um, it's, it's, it's people and mindset. And uh, to, to be part of a a turnaround, you have to be really optimistic. Turnarounds are not a sprint. It's a marathon and it's a long marathon. It's generally at least a five-year journey till you start to really see the, the impact of, of what you're doing. And that means that, that for a quite a long period of time, um, you're confronted with difficult news and challenge every day. And so it takes an enormous amount of, of optimism to see beyond what's immediately in front of you. And yet at the same time, you have to confront what's immediately in front of you. You have to be absolutely in love with what you're doing to innovate it. I talk about this a little bit in my book. I, I believe it's against human nature to innovate because it's against human nature to take risk. We are always, you know, trying to be as warm as we can be and well-fed and comfortable and we're, we we actually in our lives evolved to minimize risk so that we can survive. At the same time, it's inherently human to be creative. And so kind of playing upon or drawing upon that creative instinct inside of people and creating that kind of community of of collaboration also makes it easier for people to overcome their inherent risk aversion when others are on the same journey with you and you're building on each other's ideas and innovating together it tends to work better so yeah people in mindset
0: Stephen, thank you that has provided a fantastic insight into the exciting world of both kodak and nokia and the resurgence that both brands are going through as well as your own fascinating journey thank you and best of luck with your onward journey thank you Thanks for listening to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future-shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.